everyone and welcome back to the ride podcast i'm michaela and i'm nicole and today we are doing something different with the ride podcast um we had a cancellation for our podcast interview we were super pumped about it but she unfortunately is sick today so we had to roll on and find something else to entertain you guys with so we thought what else other than you know kind of interview each other and talk to each other yeah, well, you know, obviously we were really excited to talk to um, the person that was lined up today, but she is unfortunately out with the stomach bug, and we all know how miserable that is, so we told her that we could obviously reschedule, and um, since it was kind of a last-minute thing, we've just decided to talk to each other. I think it'll be good, though, because I think, you know, you guys know that we are on Horse and Riders editorial team, and we work with the horses all the time but you guys don't really know a ton about us so maybe it'll give you a little more insight as to who we are and what we like to do with our own horse life yeah of course and Nicole and I are friends outside of working for horse and riders so I think it'll be really interesting to get to know us especially as friends and riders and you know a little bit more of our background but before we get into our interview, we're going to jump into a couple of current events and we're going to keep our, you know, style of the podcast the same, even though it's just going to be us two talking. Yeah. So starting off is the AHP Awards. Nicole is a winner here for her personality profile that she wrote on Alex Bowens, who was our podcast interviewee last episode. So we kind of briefly mentioned how her profile was eligible for the award and she ended up winning it. And we also have a few others who took home awards within Horse and Rider, such as Jenny Meyer's Thinking Rider blog, which has been around for a while. And if you haven't read it already, you need to because it's obviously award winning and absolutely great. Yeah. And um, one other photo actually won it was one that Annette took for the uh, massage therapy feature that we did last spring I want to say it was or summer uh so she won that as well for horse and rider I believe Katie Navarro's horses helping seniors article also won some awards and that was featured on our website so you can check it out but I was really excited that my feature was able to take home the first place for the Profile Personality uh, Award. You know, Alex is an old friend. You guys, have you got to know her on the podcast last week. You know our our history. And so it's just, it was really exciting to, to win something with a feature that meant that much to me. Yeah, it's really special. Nicole has won other AHP awards, and those are, of course, special to her. But this being a friend, I imagine, is super special. And Alex was on the cover, and then she wrote the feature. And we actually have two podcast episodes with Alex. One where in season one, I read the profile, and now in season two with an interview. So if you haven't read the profile, go read it, go listen to it. And then if you haven't listened to our previous episode be sure to go listen to that one yeah um speaking of winners um we are working on our win a day finalists for the brad barkermeyer contest i feel like it's been forever since we started that but it really hasn't it's just been a very interesting couple of months that you know changed the way that we observe time I feel like um but we're finally going through and we are working with the finalists they're sending us videos that we will watch with Brad to pick the winner and um yeah hopefully we'll be able to get these travel bans done so that we can you know right now our company is not having anybody fly for obvious reasons but hopefully that'll be ending soon so that we can go to the winner's house and put on this amazing clinic yeah, yeah and so if you entered and you haven't heard back from us then we're sorry you didn't make it into the contest but if you did enter and you've heard back from us keep an eye out on social media because you'll be able to see your photo of the finalist and if you did enter and you weren't a winner this time, be sure to keep entering our win-a-day contest. We have numerous win-a-day contests just at Horse and Rider, and then our sister publications also have win-a-day contests. So just keep entering because you never know when your chance might be. Yeah, and I have to say that this contest, Michaela and I read every single entry that you all sent in, and we had, I think, double the amount of entries from our last Brad Win-a-day. So, but I have to say that the people who entered this contest it was so good we had such a hard time picking the top 10 I think we went through like seven rounds 
of just like trying to narrow it down because Michaela and I both had favorites that we didn't want to get rid of. Yeah, it was it was really hard. We both did it separately since we're working remotely. So we weren't able to sit down in the same office and review together. So it was she'd review some, I'd review some. And I don't know, it was just really challenging to pick all of the winners because so many people had such great stories and, you know, they're living their best horse lives and everybody deserved to win, but it's so hard to just pick one. Yeah. But anyway, we're really excited for that and stay tuned on our social media. I'm sure we'll announce the winner on our podcast too. Yeah, of course. And then our last item on our current events is the sad passing of Arrowgate. Yeah. Arrowgate was a thoroughbred racehorse. Um, anybody who has any kind of interest in the racing industry would probably know who he is. And, you know, we're a Western magazine, but we have so much respect for the other industries of the horse world. And, you know, anytime a a really influential horse like this dies, it's a, it's a big deal, not just for the people in the racing industry, but for us too, because you know, that's, it's really sad to see such an influential stallion at such a young age die. Yeah, he was only seven years old, so it's super sad to see such a young stallion die, especially one as accomplished as he is. He had limited outs on the track and made so much money. Yeah, I believe he's the all-time money um, leader for the for North America anyway. So, yeah, he, he was very influential in his very short time on the track. Um, Bob Baffert trained him, which, uh, if you guys have watched some of our other stuff on social media, we've talked about Bob quite a few times because he has some kind of history in the Western industry. I know Michaela had no idea. Yeah, I really didn't. I knew that he was a trainer and that he trained Justify and American Pharaoh, but I did not know that he had a background in the Western industry. Yeah. So he grew up showing horses like a lot of us did and, uh, eventually, got into the timed stuff, got into the quarter horse racing world. And now obviously he's a thoroughbred trainer and has trained some of the top racehorses in the world. But he uh, he still does a lot with the Western horses. All of his pony horses are like ex-rainers or like, you know, have reigning bloodlines. He buys them from like the Twombly sale and uh, he, like one of them, which I think it was American Pharaoh's pony horse. He's a he's a offspring of Wimpy's Little Steps. So he, like phenomenal reigning backgrounds um, and they're beautiful. But uh, yeah, he, he rides Western and. I think uh, a horse show after Justify won, they presented him with a Western saddle that had American Pharaoh and Justify's name on it. And I think they actually put it on Justify. Uh, We published that photo on our Facebook page. I will have to dig it up because it's really cool and it might be worth resharing. And Arrowgate's story is pretty cool at the Dubai Cup because he started at the back and ended up winning. So to be able to make that kind of comeback, he is a, it was a talented horse and hopefully we remember his legacy and the future generations will remember him as the winner he is and his foals that he has on the ground will hopefully hold up to what he has accomplished and on that note I think we're going to go into the interview between Michaela and myself Okay, so today we're going to get to know each other a little better for the podcast. I know that we are friends outside of work, but um, we're also aware that you guys don't get to know us the way that we, you know, know each other. And and maybe you don't know our background with riding and showing and, and where we were before we got to horse and rider. So on that note, Michaela, can you kind of tell everybody how you even got involved with riding to bandwidth? Like, how old were you? Yeah, so I first sat on the back of a horse at two weeks old. My mom, it was actually for a photo op. My mom thought that it would be a great idea to put me on the back of a horse at dusk and take a photo with a flash. And so actually, I fell off my first horse at two weeks old because the flash went off and all of the horses spooked, except for the one that I was on. But my mom kind of, you know, grabbed me off and held me tight and um, apparently that didn't scare me enough because I still ride to this day and some of the horses that I ride are 
not so broke all the time. And I mean, the two that I run competitively are, but so that kind of kicked off my riding. My mom rode horses growing up. So it's just kind of in the family. She had horses and then I fell in love with the horses in the pasture and just kind of started out as a genuine horse lover before I even knew what competing was. That's so funny. And actually, I did not know this about you, but um, we we kind of have similar upbringings in this the horse world. I was on my first horse at six months old, maybe even a little less, but that's the earliest that my mom can remember. And there's a picture of me. Um, there was no uh, crazy photo op that ended in spooking and what could have been a very bad situation. But um, uh, when I was around eight or nine I broke my arm riding a horse falling off and again was not enough to scare me we we went I had to so I grew up riding in my grand my mom grew up riding and my grandparents had a farm in Amboy Illinois if anybody's familiar with that um and so they always had horses in the pasture they were predominantly cattle uh farmers they had uh you know they they did the they did crops but they also had uh, dairy cattle and then eventually beef. So they'd always had cattle on their property and they always had a couple horses just, just to ride around. They weren't, you know, big time show people or anything by that. Um, but yeah, we would, we would just saddle up a horse in the pasture and, and go ride. And when I was uh, really young, my aunt decided to put us on bareback and just, she was just leading us. I mean, it's not like we were, you know, out and about gallivanting on our own. It was my sister and I. But there was a barn cat that jumped out of a bush and scared the horses. My sister and I both came off. I tried to stop myself with my hands straight out, and it resulted in breaking my arm in, like, a Z formation. Um, my sister was much luckier. All she got was, like, a bruise on her ankle from getting stepped on. So, <laughs> um, but when you're in Amboy, Illinois, there's not a lot of uh, hospital options. And my mom wasn't, she is a nurse. My mom's a nurse. And at the time she was working for Edwards Hospital in Naperville, which is where I'm from. And that's about a two hour drive from Amboy. And she made me get in the backseat of the car and drive two hours to Naperville to get my arm fixed and cast and all that stuff. And I just remember my grandmother sitting in the backseat holding me because I was nine and um, yeah, I still remember that pain. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, it was like every turn it hurts. I don't know if you've ever experienced a broken bone. Yeah, not a broken arm of any sorts, but a horse related accident with my face more so. But. Oh, that sounds, <laughs> we'll get into that here in a minute. But um, yeah, no, I just remember with like every turn or stop, you could just like the pressure. It was crazy. But um, when I fell off, I was, I did not cry. I'm not a big crier, um, but I did not cry. And I was more afraid of my mom finding out. And so when my aunt asked to look at my arm, which by the way, it was shaped like a Z. So like you could see the bones kind of like pushing into my skin. So it wasn't great. And I looked at her in the eyes and I said, she was like, I need to look at your arm. I think it's broken. I looked her in the eyes and I said, it's not broken. And I rolled down my sweatshirt sleeve and walked away. And um, that is, yeah, that was kind of my childhood riding. <laughs> oh my gosh, that story actually is so similar to the one where I, you know, kind of broke my face. Um, because I did not realize in that aspect how much we were alike. But I was team sorting, you know, back in my younger days, I just tried all sorts of different events. And the local saddle club had a team sorting event. So I thought, oh, we'll take some horses and go season horses around cattle and just try something new and have fun. So we loaded up horses and my horse was pretty solid around cattle. She, you know, had been around them a few times. My dad's horse, which was a half sibling to the mare that I rode, he, on the other hand, was not as seasoned, not as broke, but we thought, great opportunity to do this. So I ran through a few horses, worked them down, and decided that it was time to get on my dad's horse. And I decided to do so in his saddle, which at the time, I think I was probably 14, so I hadn't really grown up yet. I was still a little short, so my feet didn't reach into the stirrups. 
So I was working this guilding around some cattle and, you know, just messing around. I wasn't even team sorting at the time. And next thing you know, he breaks into a buck. And I rode it for a little while. And then his saddle didn't have any rough out. It was a smooth all over. So um, my bottom was not as sticky as I had hoped. And without any stirrups, I am no bareback bronc rider. So I came off face first. And um, I kind of like shoveled into the ground a little bit. <laughs> so I ended up fracturing my nose and then I bit through my bottom lip. And so I got up and didn't cry because, you know, I had so much adrenaline going through me anyways. And like Nicole, I'm not a big crier. So I was so mad at this horse. And I, I mean, like any rider wants to do, they want to get back on the horse that threw them off. So I kind of dug the dirt out of my mouth. And marched up to the horse and I said I was getting back on and my mom saw the amount of blood that was coming from my face and decided that it was time to go to the hospital. So I spent the night in the hospital, learned I had a fractured nose, bit through my lip and, you know, taped it all up. But then the next week I made a stupid error as a teenager and I looked over my pony as he was eating his grain and he threw his head up and hit my nose and just broke it the rest of the way so yeah I also didn't cry for that one I just went inside and I grabbed some frozen vegetables because we were at we were camping so we, we were at a rodeo and we didn't have you know an ice pack or anything so I'm like well frozen vegetables and put those on my face and went to the ho another hospital a week later is that what the scar on your lip is? Yeah. that's. I know that you guys can't see this, but it's kind of funny because I have a really big scar on my lip too because I got headbutt by a horse and it split my lip open. Um, this was a couple years ago, so I was a, I was an adult, um, <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing. Um, but I do a lot of photography in my free time. I know that you guys are probably very familiar with the amount of photography I do for the magazine, but outside of the magazine, I do a lot of portrait work, especially with horses. Um, and I was photographing a girl who I've known for a very long time, and she, I love her family, but they had a walk trot horse. And the horse was very, very sensitive to flies. And it was a very buggy day. And we had been fly spraying her like crazy and nothing seemed to be helping. While I happened to be leading her to a position to position her under a tree. And she, I was getting ready to hand over the lead rope to the little girl. And right as I was like moving, she swung her head around and smacked me right in the face. And she was wearing a show halter and the silver split my lip in half and I chipped a tooth. But, um, you know, it was like she's it was a walk trot horse. So she was like as as easygoing as it could be. It was just like she was trying to get to a fly and I just happened to be in her way. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So, so we have, Michaela and I have very matching scars, um, both from horse related incidents, which is kind of funny. Yeah. So let's kind of backtrack again a little bit. And, you know, we started off with how we started riding. So, how did you get into showing horses? So, we, when I was, um, still pretty young my mom who had grown up riding her whole life decided that it was time that we get our own horse um because my grandparents farm was about two two and a half hours away from our house so we didn't get to go there every weekend and my mom wanted us to be able to ride so we bought a horse he was a paint horse he was a buckskin paint and his name was bucky you know as every other buckskin is named in this world and um he was my mom had just bought him for us to have and just to learn how to ride properly because you know we didn't ever really have any traditional training it was kind of just if you can get on that horse and make it go you go and that was just kind of the way it was at my grandpa's like it was just, we were just riding the cattle pastures and um so my mom wanted us to learn more about how to ride a horse properly and the barn that we were at at the time we had bought the horse from them and they showed very local level paint horse stuff and um so we kind of got accidentally introduced into the horse show world just because they were doing it kind of at that regional level and invited us to start doing it with them and so we 
we rode there for a little bit. And, um, as we learned more, my parents decided to take us to a, a little more competitive paint horse barn just so we could further our career. And, and then as that happened, then we had friends who were training with Brad and Valerie Kearns in, in Grays Lake, Illinois, and they were, um, training you know they had all the top girls in the country for the AQHA stuff and so my parents decided to make the switch there so that I had a shot at showing at the national level and it just kind of snowballed from there yeah that's interesting I didn't know that about you I, I just knew about your youth showing career so I really wasn't sure how you had gotten into you know the actual showing part of it so that's kind of cool that you know it started out with you know you didn't really have grow up in a showing family it was something that you kind of took off with on your own yeah no my mom grew up showing like the 4-h stuff and and mostly though she showed cattle because that's what her family did for a living uh but if she had a horse or a pony she would show it uh but at a very regional level or local level even and uh yeah so we you know it was never my parents never came into it just being like, you know, you're going to show at this national level and you're going to do this and that. It, they definitely let me pick that I wanted to do it. But I also have to say that I was very fortunate as a kid to have parents who could afford to t let me go to these horse shows. I homeschooled. I had, you know, access to some of the top trainers in the country. Like I was I was very, very lucky to get the education that I had. And now I'm in a position where I'm able to use that education and do what I have to do to to be in the horse industry because I don't have access to that stuff anymore. But um, you also grew up showing before you started your barrel racing. How did you get into that? Yeah. So I always wanted to do barrel racing ever since I was a, you know, first got on a horse because that's kind of what my family did. They were in the rodeo atmosphere and especially my cousins. I have two cousins who were really big into barrel racing but my mom knew that I was not allowed to start barrel racing until I got a foundation in horsemanship. So she started me out with a going to horse riding lessons. That's where it all started. She knew that I needed to go ride lesson horses. So I took some lessons. Unlike Nicole, I didn't really live in a suburb area. I lived kind of in the middle of nowhere, Missouri. So a lot of top trainers or really any trainers weren't super accessible. So the trainer that I worked with was a start. And then from there, I just had some horses that I kind of did the 4-H and local stuff with. And then I actually, in a roundabout way, there was this horse that I always wanted to ride at my lesson barn, but I was never allowed to ride her because she was too advanced and she was a show horse. So I was never, ever allowed to ride her. And then one day, my family and I were just at an auction. And this horse came up for sale. And we were like, well, this is strange. This horse looks exactly like this lesson horse. So my dad ended up buying her because he wanted just a trail horse. That's why we were at the auction. My dad just wanted another trail riding horse. So we brought this horse home and then we looked at the papers and we realized that it was my lesson horse that I always wanted to ride. So I ended up, you know, at that point in time, I was much more advanced and able to ride a lot better. I had just the basic foundation of how to ride a horse, you know, other than just hopping on in the pasture and going. So I took that horse and did some more local regional type stuff. She was a paint horse, so showed it in the paint horse stuff. And then from there, that mare and I actually, as it turns out, did not get along <laughs> the best. We It was more of a forced relationship that we ended up having. But, you know, she taught me a lot. And then from there, I got into reining a little bit. I wanted another barrel horse. Of course, through all this time, I did a little bit of barrel racing. I just kind of dabbled in it. But my mom would never let me go super fast because like I said, you know, I don't think a lot of barrel racers, you know, realize this. You have to have that foundation before you go fast. So going from there and then dabbled in the raining for just maybe a year or so. And then I was probably around 14, 15. That's probably the years that I was doing the raining. And once again, nothing super, super competitive because it was something that I was just starting in. And then from there, I just started training my own horses because I 
realized that I had a little bit of talent in training horses and I like to train horses. So I started training some horses and then that's when I really got into barrel racing. I finally got a step up horse that was of 1D, 2D caliber in the youth events. And then that's where my barrel racing really took off. So it's kind of a long story in a short amount of years because I mean, I'm only 23 now. So I had to, you know, do a whole lot in 23 years and try to gain as much knowledge as I possibly could because, you know, I would have loved to have shown at, you know, the larger levels in the all around events, but that's just not where my heart really wanted to be. And it was just more of something that I wanted to, and my parents wanted to, you know, just give me a solid foundation before I moved on to those super high speed competitive events like that. Yeah. I think it's really important to have that just classical training and just basic knowledge of horsemanship and riding and it transfers over in every event you know it doesn't matter if you're bell racing or if you're doing the all-around or if you're doing the reining like you know having that basic knowledge and understanding is so important so that's so nice that your parents were able to offer that you and I had a little bit of a different life growing up though because your horses were always in your backyard right yes they were my I never had that growing up you know we always had I'm from the suburbs of Chicago in a town called Naperville and um, that's a, a very very uh, urban lifestyle over there you know not a lot of horse people and most people in my high school or high, whatever year I was did not understand why I was missing school for horses um, they thought it was weird I was the weird horse girl still am I'm okay with that um, but yeah, I, I always had, we always had, we were there at a boarding barn or we were with our trainers and our trainers were hours away. So I didn't get to go and ride every day. Like, um, somebody who would have their horse in their backyard, but it, it's just, yeah, it's, it's different. Yeah. I, I could never actually imagine having to board my horse that far away because I'm the type of person that I'm so comp- I'm so competitive, but not in the sense that it's just, I always want to win, but I'm competitive with myself and I want to see myself succeed. So I'm literally always on the back of a horse if I'm not working or doing or back in the years doing schoolwork. You know, I would always be out at the barn trying to better myself as a horse person because I felt that that was the only way that I was going to continue to grow. So whether, you know, I was running out to the pasture to hop on bareback to go you know, for a spin on a horse or whether I was saddling up to actually practice. I was always out there in my backyard. My parents always have had hundreds of acres. So I've had the ability to, whether it be in the arena or go trail ride and just do whatever I wanted to do on my parents' property. Yeah, I ended up homeschooling um, when I was in high school just so I could go to the barn every day and ride because our barn was about an hour and a half away and you had to drive through Chicago traffic to get there. So, uh, if you hit any kind of rush hour, it would take two to three hours. And, uh, yeah, so I actually homeschooled, so I could have the opportunity to ride every day, but yeah, it's, it's a lot different when you're stuck in a, in a area where you have to board or keep your horse or the trainer. Yeah. It's a totally different life. And like, I mean, you probably don't understand fully, you know, what the life of having a horse on your own property. And I don't fully understand you know, boarding a horse. I I boarded my horse in college, but that was the only time. And that was only, you know, a mile down the road from, you know, where my apartment was. But I don't really, you know, understand the life of boarders or, you know, what all boarding and that entails. Yeah. Thankfully, I, I, I have had the opportunity to have my horse on my property when I was living in Oklahoma and was at Wes Wetherell's house. Um, I lived with them for a little bit when his wife was sick, who's one of my best friends in the world. Uh, so I did have it for a little bit, but growing up I had, you know, I, we just, you don't have barns in Naperville. <laughs> um, so it was different, but, uh, yeah, it was, what, what is the most memorable thing you remember about showing as a kid or even just riding? I guess it doesn't have to be showing. Wow. That's, a, that's such a hard question because I feel like there are so many memorable moments I mean of course one of the memorable moments is me you know hurting my face as a child that's definitely ingrained in my riding and that definitely taught me some lessons so you know always learn from your riding mistakes but I guess it's actually a more recent 
memory and it's just something that I feel is my biggest accomplishment and my accomplishment that I hold the dearest to my heart because I recently we did a podcast episode of how I made it to RFD TV's the American semifinals and I did that on a horse that had a late start to life uh, she wasn't broke until she was seven and I trained her and I have done everything with her and she was kind of a not so great horse in the beginning she's bred to do exactly what she does but you know doing that and she's only been competing this is her third year competing so she made the semifinals on her second year on you know competing on the barrels so that's a memory that really sticks out in my head and it's you know one of the best memories that I have but there are so many memories that I can look back on on whether it be my showing career or my reigning career, there are so many that I can think about and reminisce on. But most recently, that's that's probably the best one. Well, and not to mention her horse, Didi, that you're talking about. You had made a huge move that last year, too. So it's not like you were just barrel racing and preparing for this event. And, you know, so really... She has less than three years of, you know, barrel racing under her belt because Michaela came out of college and she moved to Colorado for this job. And it's got to be hard to transition, you know, and, and get yourself together after a big move like that. So, yeah, I mean, you, you had quite a bit of obstacles in your way. Yeah, both my horse and I. I mean, you know, it's it's a big move for myself and a big move for my horse. She, you know, traveled a lot with me. She lived in three different locations throughout the time that I was training her. So, you know, her training kept varying in different arenas and different, just wherever I could work with her and where I was living at the time is where she was, you know, being put on the pattern. And, you know, with a move, it's hard to compete during those times. So there's a lot of times like that I wouldn't be competing. And most of my horses get the winter off because Missouri winters are very, very wet and cold. So riding there, I didn't grow up with an indoor arena. So those times were, you know, she wasn't being ridden. So there were a few hardships and she actually sat in my pasture for uh, about a year and a half, uh, just kind of light riding. I um, had a bad experience with another horse that I was training that kept bucking me off. And I really had lost a lot of confidence in myself as a trainer. So I um, just let her sit there until I went to college. And my mom forced me to take her to college with me. And when you only have one horse to ride um, at college, then that's the horse you ride. And you really see a lot of improvements when you only have one horse to ride. And that's what you love to do. So what's your biggest accomplishment, whatever it is with horses, whether it's showing or, you know, or most memorable moment? Um, yeah, like you said, it's a hard one. I think there are a lot that stand out uh, as a youth kid. I, I was very, very, you know, horse showing was my life. And so winning the Quarter Horse Congress was a really huge milestone for me because I had, you know, I've, I've had some really bad luck at the youth world and, um, I ended up third one year, but it was, you know, I'd always win the prelims and then have something stupid, like a fly. My horse kicked at a fly two years in a row in the world show finals. So I always had kind of a rough go at the world show and the Congress always seemed to be a better, better place for me. And I had end up third a couple times and, you know, I always kind of sat in that bridesmaid spot and never, never got the the win and finally I won the youth showmanship and um, I was unanimous under all four judges so that was a really big deal to me as a kid uh, it, and obviously it's still a big deal now or else I wouldn't be bringing it up but um, you know since then I think you know it wasn't even a win that was probably my proudest moment it was taking a horse that I trained and I didn't train him all by myself I had help from Wes Weatherall and um, but I taught him the showmanship all by myself and I played seventh at the world show with him and I bought him out of a pasture for almost nothing. And, you know, competing against those girls that have $200,000 horses, that's intimidating. And I didn't have the funds or the ability to show like them. And, you know, I had to work off my training bills and boarding bills. And, um, you know, I only got to show a handful of times just to get qualified. It's not like I was going to horse shows every weekend like I would be when I was a kid. So, yeah, I think that was a really special moment, too, just because, you know, I was able to see I went off a four year showing hiatus and went to the world show and was still able to do well in a horse that I taught myself. So, and then I ended up selling him, but, uh, 
you know, the person that bought him had some really, really great things to say about how he was trained and rode. And so that was a very special moment for me. Yeah, I think a lot of people would agree, though, that one of their special moments is having the success with a horse that they've trained. Because, you know, it's something to be able to go and compete on a horse that somebody else has trained and put a lot of work into. And it's a lot of work to, you know, be successful with those horses. But just the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into working with a horse from scratch and then going on and being successful, it it's an accomplishment. And I think anybody who does it will agree because, you know, that that's a proud moment. And it's one that you should be proud of. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that would really, like, stand out to me in my life and it's not necessarily about the horses or anything to do with them but I used to when I was a youth kid even though I was very lucky to have the nice horses and the nice barn and the training I still worked uh when I traveled with my horse trainer so I would feed clean stalls saddle horses you know clean the aisle way all that stuff I I did a lot and I it helped kind of pay for some of the horse showing because that gets really expensive and I just um, I was at a horse show in Virginia and I, so fast forwarding a couple years, I, I couldn't, I couldn't afford horses anymore. And I was, I couldn't get a full-time job after I graduated college. Cause I graduated after the recession just hit and, um, it was kind of rough. And so I would help horse trainers at horse shows. I would, they would fly me out to shows and I would help them get their horses ready and their kids. And, uh, you know, I'm no way a professional, but that's just what I had to do to get by. And, uh, thankfully I worked for some really fantastic people who, you know, believed in me and let me do stuff. But Robin Fred, who's an outstanding all around trainer, I think he has like 60 world championships, from his customers and himself under his belt. Like he's, he's extremely talented. And he, I, he let me kind of work for him for a while. And he said, I remember one time when you were 16, I was at a horse show in Virginia and you guys were stalled next to me. And I saw you feeding all the horses every day and cleaning all the stalls and helping other customers get their horses ready on top of yours. And mind you, I was 16. So I was still a kid. And he's like, and that really stuck with me. That work ethic really stuck with me. And that's probably the biggest deal I've ever, like it just to have somebody recognize you in the barn doing the dirty work because in the industry I come from and I, I hate that I have to say this but a lot of those girls don't do that stuff they just come to the horse show and they you know get on their horse and yes they they put in a lot of work and they ride but a lot of them don't understand they don't know how to put a fake tail in you know they don't know they don't clean the stalls they don't feed the horses and that's fine and I don't I don't want anybody to think that I'm talking and saying that they're not worthy of what they're doing because they absolutely are and they're putting their heart and soul into it. But it's just, it's different. Yeah, and I think I 100% agree coming from kind of the same, you know, area is that I was always out there putting in the work of feeding the horses. And, you know, it was kind of my job, essentially, even being like eight years old, it was my job, my parents would say, because those are my horses, I was the one that wanted to compete. So that was my job to do that. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who don't take care of their own horses. And there's a place in the horse industry for those people. And it's, it's fantastic. And I'm glad that they're able to do it. And glad they're able to support other people and pay other people to, you know, take care of their horses. But being able to also be behind the scenes and clean the stalls and, you know, even saddle your own horse, it really shows a lot of the work ethic. And I think that a lot of horse people have a hard work ethic because we are, you know, up before dawn to feed our horses. We are, you know, out late at night, whether we're at our office job coming home to feed or just checking on our horses or riding by, you know, truck headlights because we don't have arena lights. You know, horse people really are dedicated to what they do. And I'm proud to be a horse person because, you know, I belong with those people. 100%. I think we can all agree that the work ethic that horse people have is just, it's in its own world. Like you, you really truly have to love what you do because I know that when I was living on, in Oklahoma on a farm or, or a barn and um, 
you know, it, Sunday was my day off, my one day off. And, you know, you didn't get a day off if you were at a horse show because horse shows go through the weekend. So anytime that I was home and I had a Sunday off, I loved it. I could see my boyfriend. I could, you know, do whatever I needed to do. And but, you know, if a horse colicked on a Sunday, you, you dropped what you were doing and you're walking that horse and you're calling the vet and you're doing what you need to make sure that they're healthy. And, you know, even on the on Sundays when I wasn't working, I was still turning out horses and making sure that everybody was OK, you know, making sure everybody had water, helping Manuel, who's the barn manager, out with anything that he needed help with and so yeah it's 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 a different world but yeah okay so kind of shifting gears who is your biggest mentor in the horse industry that's really hard I don't want to leave anybody out and so I've mentioned like Brad and Tyler Kearns I grew up riding with as a youth kid and I owe them my life when it comes to teaching me how to be a showman um, when I moved to Oklahoma, I started riding with Wes Weatherell, who taught me to be a horseman. I truly, truly give him all the credit in the world when it comes to really teaching me how to ride a horse because he put me on the, you know, old unbroke horse that, you know, a customer that only had $4,000 to buy a horse got and they can't even get it to walk around with his head kind of down or, you know, or, or somebody brought, you know, a horse they wanted to turn into a jumper, but it was afraid of everything. So they just needed somebody to kind of cowboy around on him and just build up this horse's confidence. And, you know, but he would also put me on horses that we're, we're great. We're talented, but just didn't know what they were doing. And, uh, he made me break out Colts. And so he, he truly put me on everything and he taught me to not put a horse into your program, but to learn how to ride the horse the way that they get, get along with. Cause you can't just like force them to ride the way that you like to ride. You have to adjust how you do that stuff. And so, those people were really influential. And then, you know, like I said earlier, Robin Fred was a, is a good friend. He allowed me to, when I was in a place where I could not own horses and I was living in Colorado and jobless, he kind of took me under his wing and allowed to, allowed me to keep furthering my career and all that. And I recently switched to the cow horse stuff. And so, um, but I've taken all of those lessons that I've learned from those people and are able to apply that to the cow horse stuff now. Yeah, being able to gather from so many great horse people, that's, you know, something to think about and everybody should want to do that. And I know that, you know, if you were to ask me who my mentor was, it would be really hard to pick one person because I've had so many people that have helped me over the years and coming from so many different events that it's hard to pick just one person that I could name as a mentor because so many have made an impact on who I am as a rider and who I am as a horsewoman and you know each of them have given me different advice or even the same advice that have shaped me who I who are those people so one that really really stands out and he is you know by means not a professional even he's just a show parent that took the time to help me and he helped me a lot when I was, you know, going into the all around and he helped me there. And then I started having a lot of troubles with a barrel horse that I had. She had really bad gait issues and he took the time out of a weekend that we were both, you know, not going to compete. We were just doing other things. He took the time to spend a weekend with me and kind of do my own mini clinic and helped me you know switch bits switch everything to help this horse get a little bit better and so his name is greg snyder and he just has been a very influential person and still to this day i know that if i had a problem i could call him and talk to him and you know even though he's not a professional he's a person that i really genuinely look up to um another person is ed wright and he passed away a few years ago from Lyme disease actually and I had been to a few of his clinics because I'm the type of person that I don't normally attend a clinic more than once because I like to learn from so many different people but Ed is one of those people that he was kind of like a grandfather figure because he's one that I could go and learn something new no matter what each time I went to a clinic and you know 
I learned so much with each of the different horses that I took to his clinic and his style of riding was fantastic and I wish that I could still go to more of his clinics because he taught me so much as a barrel racer and yeah there are things that I have adapted because I can't ride exactly like you know Ed Wright or one in particular person I am myself so I have to ride you know adaptively so kind of rolling off and adapting to different riding and different horses, of course. I know that you p- competed at the collegiate level with, you know, the all-around. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I don't know a lot about your college career. Yeah, so when I was in college, the it was still NCAA at the time. Now I think it's NCEA, but it's still considered an NCAA sport. Um, I was recruited to Oklahoma State University to be on their horsemanship portion of their riding team. But it was really cool. It was um, when I was there, it, I was the first or second year of recruits it was very very early on um a lot different than what what everybody's doing now to to get recruited and all that you know when I was a junior I didn't even know this was a thing and you know halfway through my senior year I got a phone call from the coach at Oklahoma State asking if I wanted to you know go on a a student athlete visit and see the school and this and that and I ended up going there and it was really cool because you I don't know are you familiar with it at all very minimal. So what happens is that you uh, compete against other schools. And when you're so say if we were competing against Texas A&M, um, we would go to their their barn and we would use their horses and you would get four minutes to ride that horse. And so then you would compete and then the next round of riders would get on those same horses and you would compete against an A&M girl on the same horse and whoever scored higher got the point for the team. Uh, so it was really cool in the sense that you're riding the same horse as somebody else. So it really evens out the playing field. I know a lot of people kind of have issues with the idea of um, schools when you're riding on your home horses, you have an advantage, but all of my MVPs came from away horses. So I don't, I mean, yes, obviously if you know the horse, you have a better chance of riding better, but I don't know if like, I just, my mindset was different because when I'm on my own horse, like I definitely get in my own head and I love everything to be perfect. And it bites me in the, you know, but all the time, you know, and, but when I get on a horse, I don't know. I just kind of go with the flow and do what I can and, and learn in four minutes. And so uh, I was, you know, my team won the big 12 championships and I was the MVP there. And, you know, I think we ended up like second or third at at nationals when I was there. But uh, it was really cool. It, it really taught me a lot about just getting on and showing what you have. Yeah, I think that's super cool, actually, about, you know, the college showing because you aren't showing your horse like you know you are hopping on a different horse and having to prove your abilities as a rider that you can jump ride a horse get on there and go ride around for four minutes and then hit the show pin which is really cool in my eyes yeah and I think the other thing that I truly appreciated about it is so there was you know an English portion of the team and a western portion of the team and the English side did the jumping and then they did equitation on the flat and the flat was a little different um it was almost like a dressage pattern but it was based on your riding ability so you know you had the arena set up like you would at a dressage arena and you know they did lots of circles and diagonals and you know they had the letters you know lope you know, canter from here to here and stuff like that. So it was kind of like dressage, but based on the rider. Um, and then on the Western side, you had the horsemanship, which is what I did. And you had the reining. So it was cool because not only was it a team sport for the first time in our lives, you know, riding was a team sport, which is something that never happens. And yes, your team is your barn and you support your barn. And it, but it's different because at the same turn of the coin, a lot of barns you're competing against the people that you ride with every day and you, you would never wish them, you know, ill will or anything like that. But at the same time, you're like, you're still trying to beat them. But when you're on a collegiate team, it's a team sport. You want everybody to, to do well. And so it was, it was really cool in that sense. And um, something that I had to learn to adjust to because I was not used to being part of a team. And it was, you know, I was kind of used to it just being me, myself and I. Yeah, that's, you know, something that I've never done. I've, I've never competed as a team. I skipped out on the college rodeo aspect. I decided that 
rodeo no longer was for me. So when I went to college, I just did barrel racing. So, you know, I skipped out on the team building aspect of, you know, competing and being on a team. But looking back, I think that's really a cool thing to have, because like you said, as equestrians, we really don't get the opportunity to be on teams very often you have your barn and you know in the barrel racing world I have my friends and I cheer for my friends but we're not on a team you know we're we're just friends cheering each other on and hoping that somebody does great but it's totally different to be on a team and you know really be crossing your fingers that oh my gosh I hope you know so and so does really good today because they're gonna really pull the weight of the team because I'm not feeling super great about the horse that I'm getting on or something like that you know well, and I don't, you might be different, but I didn't, I was never on any team sports growing up. I did figure skating and I rode horses and both of those are individual sports. So I never, I never had that experience. Yeah, I did actually compete on a few team sports, but once again, I'm only 23. So my time span of life is very short. So I did some soccer as a very, very youth kid. I loved soccer actually. It was so much fun. And then I played basketball a little bit in like middle school but once I got to high school I was totally done with team sports and really really just wanted to focus on horses because between school and sports and horses that was a lot anybody who does all three of those things and is successful with all of them is really fantastic but I knew that school and horses were my priorities so that's what I stuck with so kind of going off of horses being your priority what what are some of your goals that you're looking forward to kind of completing here yeah so actually 2020 goals have um changed a They've little bit shifted <laughs> yeah uh, 2020 goals are now a potentially 2021 goals because coronavirus has changed a few things so you know some of those goals might still be able to be accomplished but uh so i'd say my short-term goals within you know 2020 maybe 2021 depending um this past weekend actually I over halfway filled my um, professional rodeo permit card um, in order to get your card for the WPRA you have to win a thousand dollars and my horse won um, almost eight hundred dollars this past weekend so she over halfway filled it so that's one goal that I had was to fill that and then make the divisional circuit finals but I don't know if I'll be able to both fill my permit and make divisional circuit finals in this one year. Had I had all of 2020, that might have actually been possible. But since I'm trying to work really hard to fill my permit and then make circuit finals, that might be 2021 goals. But either way, I still plan on doing that and whatnot with my horses. And then, like with the American again, I plan on going to another qualifier and trying to qualify again to make it down to Fort Worth to the American semifinals. Those are my two bigger goals. And then one that's kind of on a back burner is I'm a member of the Better Barrel Races and I would like to be in the top 10 in the mountain states. But that's one that if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it's not really one that is super important to me. Whereas the other two are super you know important to me I really would like to accomplish those things so those are my competitive goals and then you know of course always trying to better myself as a barrel racer I'm um, probably not the only one that's unfamiliar with the filling your uh, pro permit and all that can you kind of explain does that you have to refill it every year or like once you're a pro are you there for a couple of years or how does that work yeah so I actually bought my permit when I was 18 and I went to one pro rodeo and didn't place and I I didn't have my good horse anymore shortly after that she ended up getting hurt she hurt her leg and I wasn't able to really compete a lot on her anymore so I didn't buy my permit again in 2019 but say I had won money in 2018 that still would have counted towards filling my permit as long as I kept buying my permit you know through now but so once I fill my permit, I will be able to upgrade to a pro card and I won't have to worry about filling the permit again. It's just the one time that I have to fill the permit. And then from there, I just have to keep renewing the pro card, which is uh, I can't remember exactly how much it costs each year. It's a little bit more expensive to have your pro card than your permit. Of course, I mean, makes sense. 
So yeah, I'm hoping to fill the permit. So with the professional card, so since I compete at divisional barrel races, which is a totally different world than rodeo, um, you know, they have the divisional circuit finals, which is what I want to do. And then, you know, on your professional rodeo card, you can make the Wrangler and FR. And, you know, I like to go to rodeos and I would enjoy to go to a couple of pro rodeos, but my horses and I just prefer to go to the jackpot barrel races. So that's, you know, kind of along with that and in a roundabout way, I think answers your question. <laughs> and when does the divisional circuit take place? Um, I think it's different for each region, but I believe for the mountain states, it's in November. Last year was actually held on my birthday, so that was kind of cool. Uh, I, I, of course, was not competing, but I was able to watch the girls who did compete and, you know, on my birthday. So the season ends in October for the year. So I think any time after October, I guess, is kind of the thing. It's still kind of a new-ish world to me. I mean, I've never really set out to compete real heavily with the professionals so so what about you what are your goals coming forward I know that you have been working really hard at this barn that you've been riding at so I I just want to know your goals um my goals are pretty basic right now it's mostly just continue to learn more about the cow horse stuff I'm really really thankful for my friendship with Janie Jill and Bill Toynton you know they're non-pro riders but they have uh, a couple of really well-known studs in their barn and they have this amazing breeding program and and throughout their years of this breeding program they've produced some really great horses and um, one of the horses that I ride, he just, he didn't really have a job right now. And so they just kind of gave me, handed me the reins and we're like, here, why don't you ride him? Like, you know, we're friends. And, um, I love going out to the barn and just riding and talking and hanging out with them. And they've been so nice to, to, you know, let me sit down on lessons with the professionals that come help them. And they've been showing me a thing or two on how to ride the horse that I'm riding. But yeah, I think just continuing to learn the cow horse stuff. Um, I've been working the flag more, just trying to figure out like how it's so different. It's so different from riding an all around horse. And even the way that you hold your hands is different. And so it's just like trying to learn all of that. And, um, I might show this year, we're trying to figure out how I can show as a non-pro I might lease him or, you know, figure out how we can, how we can do that legally because I'm a non-pro and, and they're non-pros and, um, I can't afford to buy a horse right now, but I can't afford to lease one and show one in that kind of sense. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. My goals are very much just continue to learn. Um, but you know, who knows if I could show a couple times this year, even just once. And I haven't been in the show pen since 2011 or yeah, 2011. So it's been a hot minute. Um, so yeah, that, that's my goal is to continue learning and then maybe possibly show at like a, just a weekend show. Yeah, well, I think being able to hit the show pin again would be a lot of fun for you. But I know that, you know, going from not really having a horse to be able to ride to having a horse that you can go whenever you want to be able to ride has to be, you know, a huge thing in your life. Because I know that you and I have talked before and, you know, we both love to go boxing. And, you know, we had talked about how, you know, maybe backing off of boxing just a little because we're never going to be professional boxers, but you know, being able to ride horses is our true passion. So I know that you're really excited to be back at that barn and I'm so happy for you that you're able to, and at least just be riding and learning because, you know, like you said, those are goals in itself because starting all over and, you know, learning a whole new event is huge. So, you know, I think those are great goals. Yeah. And it's just, it's just so fun. You know, it, it brings back a different kind of enjoyment with being in the saddle. Like, you know, when you're showing it's, especially when you're super competitive and at that national level, it, you kind of, it becomes a job in a sense, even though I was a non-pro, I was never technically a professional. Um, but it, it becomes a job. You go to these shows every weekend, you have this routine, you're trying to get this done, you're trying to get these points, you're trying to get this, you know, money, payback, whatever. Um, but sometimes it's nice to just be able to go to the barn. And like the other day, we just went and pushed cattle to another side of the, the property so that they could graze. And then we were just supervising them to make sure they didn't get hurt on anything. And um, then pushed them back into their pasture afterward. But 
that was so much fun. And it didn't require, you know, this like hardcore training session. It was just us kind of sitting under a tree talking and just like enjoying the view because they have this amazing view of the mountains. And so it's just, it's been a lot of fun. And I was a little burnt out for a little bit from the all around stuff. And, um, for anybody that does do the all around, I, you know, I love it and I have so much respect for it and the people that show there, but it just wasn't for me anymore. And so now it's kind of nice to have a new thing that I really, really look forward to doing. Yeah. And you talk about the burnout and I mean, you know, you enjoyed that day of not having to do hardcore training. So I know that horses love that too. You know, they don't always want to be in the practice pen working, working, working. And that's how I picture it a lot with my horses is, you know, we work pretty hard three to five days a week, but then, you know, if we're going to a barrel race, they'll get a day off or we'll just hang out. I'll hop on a bareback and they'll still get road, but nothing super heavy because I know that, you know, horses can get burnout just as easily as we can as humans. So I think that probably wraps up, you know, our conversation for today, Nicole. I think that our listeners have learned quite a bit about us. I know that you and I could probably talk for hours on end. We talk, you know, a lot throughout the day. So we already know a whole lot about each other. So trying to share what we can with you guys in a podcast is what we tried to do here today. We're going to switch over to Time to Saddle Up, which is a normal segment that we have um, when we have somebody to interview. Uh, so, Michaela, let's start with you. What is your Time to Saddle Up for the week? I know that you kind of changed your philosophy going into your most recent barrel race, and it worked out really great for you. Yeah, it did. So, my Time to Saddle Up this week is CEP Amp Air, and it's a pre-run pace that um, – actually helps clear the airways and aid in respiratory and lung functions and also helps give them that extra energy boost. So I used to use a couple of different other pre-run airway paste. Um, a few weeks ago, I mentioned how I use the flare strips, which are not a paste, but also aid in respiratory. But the paste, I had kind of gone back and forth and I never really found one that I was really, really happy with. So uh, CEP, which is Complete Equine Performance, they ran a sale on their paste and I ended up buying some and this stuff is fantastic. Let me tell you, and like the ingredients in it, they're all natural ingredients. So I feel comfortable giving it to my horse before the race. And then it also, I feel like, you know, if they can breathe better going into a run, that they can probably recover a little bit better after their run too. And I think I noticed that a little bit in my runs, but yeah, this past weekend was the first time that I really used these paste and I really noticed a difference. I did a couple of other things with my horses and I'm not the type of person who is going to just credit one product and one change to the success of my horses. But I will say that this weekend, my horses ran extremely well. Um, on Saturday, my mare, Didi, won the barrel race by nearly two-tenths. And then she also won the barrel race again on Sunday. And my gilding, Risky, he has not ran in the 1D in nearly three years now. And he was fifth in the 1D over the weekend. So... They got some new shoes, but I also want to credit this pace to some of their success because I seem to really, really like it. And I noticed that my horses were breathing so much better and they went into the pen breathing well. They came out of the pen breathing well. So if you're interested, go to CompleteEquinePerformance.com and you can check out all of their products. They have all kinds of products and they're also a facility in Oklahoma where you can take your horse to be swam. So if you're interested in that as well, you can check that out. Oh, that's really cool. So my time to saddle up for this week is the Iconoclast orthopedic sport boots. I've been using them on the horse that I ride uh, for his hind legs uh, because he stops so hard that he will bleed from the sand because he just burns himself. So it's really important that he wears uh, hind sport boots. We put them on the front as well, but the hind especially because of how deep he stops. But I really like the double sling 
um, Velcro that they use. I think it just really does a good job of like kind of cradling the the leg and just protecting it. And I've noticed that not a lot of dirt gets into them when I'm riding, which is to say a lot because when you're stopping and you stop a horse that likes to go so deep, like it's easy to just be full of dirt. But no, I really like them. Um, I they seem to hold up really well. Yeah, I have friends that have used the Iconoclast boots. I personally have not used them, but I've heard great things about them from the people that do use them yeah and so they're they're just kind of designed to kind of support their horse and you know any kind of suspensory areas of the leg and um no I think it's I think it's great I you know when I was doing the all-around stuff we mostly just used polo wraps if anything I you know most of my horses I didn't use anything because I think unless they really have to have some kind of leg support that you know sometimes we can do more damage damage than good by you know, wrapping them and with polar wraps, it's really easy to wrap them too tight. And like, you know, if their legs get really hot and you know, it's just, sometimes it's better to have nothing at all. But when you're riding the cow horses and I'm sure the barrel horses are kind of similar in the sense, like it's really important they have protection because they're going so fast and they're stopping really hard on their legs and they're doing some pretty hard maneuvers that require that extra support. So, yeah. So I think that's our time for saddle up this week. I hope that you guys enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, and, um, you know, stay tuned for our next episode. We're going to kind of go back to the regular routine, and we have a couple of really great people lined up to talk to. Thank you guys for tuning into the Ride Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Horse and Rider Magazine on social media and find us at horseandrider.com. If you guys have any questions or comments, please be sure to hit us up at horseandrider at aimmedia.com. We want to hear from you guys. And if you like what you're listening to, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. How many stars, Michaela? Five stars, please.